Well, we are in the book of Ruth tonight, and uh, we'll look at chapter one together. We interestingly just studied the book of Esther, one of the only books in the Bible named after a woman, and now we're going to look at the second, and only these two books are named after women, Ruth and Esther. Ruth, interestingly enough, is the only book in the Old Testament that's named after a Gentile. And so we have her as a woman with the title of that book and a Gentile woman. Her name means friendship, companion, compassionate friendship. So she is a person that's just beautifully devoted to her mother-in-law and more importantly, to the God of her mother-in-law the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What we find interesting in this Gentile woman is she's in the genealogy of Jesus. Matthew chapter 1, verse 5. You will discover that one of Jesus' great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandmothers, according to the flesh, was a Gentile woman. Ruth. Wow, doesn't seem right, does it? Ruth and Esther have this also in common. Both of these books clearly show the providence of God in the midst of very dire situations. That Romans 8.28, and we know that God will work all things together for good. Two, and we'll see this with Ruth, those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. Those who are willing to say, God's got a plan for my life and I want to walk in that plan. And out of a response of love to God, they're doing that. Nothing formed, no weapon formed against us will prosper. No difficulty or government or decision of anyone else will affect us. And um, this is a book of conversion. It's a Gentile girl who's converted to the covenant of God and his people. And I love her statement, your people will become my people and your God will become my God. But above everything, this is a book on redemption. It is a picture of Jesus in the New Testament and his Gentile bride. Anybody know who Jesus' Gentile bride is in the New Testament? <laughs> it's us. So this is an amazing picture, and it helps paint a story, a picture, an idea, an imagery that helps us understand God's love for us, his desire for us. And then also the true heart of commitment the true heart of just clinging unto our husband, Jesus. And so, um, Ruth, as we're going to discover, is a Moabitess. And uh, to give you the history, remember Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed? Lot's wife turned around and longed for Sodom and Gomorrah. She was turned to a pillar of salt. Only two of Lot's daughters go with him. But they, they were perverted. 
And, and they living in this cave said, let's get dad drunk. We'll take our turns having sex with him until we get pregnant. And so through this incestuous relationship of molesting their father, they get pregnant. And in Genesis 19, we discover that his firstborn uh, daughter, that son, was Moab, is what they named him. The area of Moab is really right there next to Sodom and Gomorrah. You, you can picture Israel and picture the Dead Sea. On the east side of the Dead Sea would be the area of Moab. And at the south end of the Dead Sea was believed to be the area of Sodom and Gomorrah. And so that that gives you an idea. Interesting little trivia, the closest Moses ever got to the promised land was Moab. And interesting, that's where Moses is buried, in a secret location in Moab. It tells us that in Deuteronomy uh, 34. And uh, so the Moabites became a cursed people. You guys remember that story about the crazy prophet Balaam who God ended up having to use his donkey to scold him. But Balaam wanted to curse the people because Balak, the king of Moab, was willing to pay him a lot of money. And he wanted that money. And God kept telling Balaam, no, you cannot curse these people. These are my people. But after the fact, Balaam could only prophesy blessings on Israel. But after the fact, we learn in Numbers 25 that he secretly whispered to Balak and said, look, your gals are beautiful. These Moabite women are gorgeous. You send them down there and have them seduce the Israeli guys. And when they're offering them sex, before you give them sex, they're all worked up, tell them, hey, here's my idol. You got to pray to my God of, of Moab before I can have sex with you. Believe me, when they're hot and bothered and, and uh, testosterone is flying, they'll do whatever it takes to get in bed with you. And God's anger roused against the children of Israel, and many died because of that. And so we learn in Jude and Revelation, the heir of Balaam, the way of Balaam, that, that Balaam is in hell. It's one of the few people the Bible tells us he's there. But after the fact, God said in Deuteronomy 23.3, an Ammonite, which is his brother from Lot's other daughter, or the Moabite, shall not enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. None of his descendants shall enter the assembly of the Lord forever. And so we discover here that Ruth is not just a Gentile, but a woman from a cursed people of God who only wanted to destroy the people of God. And this gal becomes the great grandmother of David. Now, this is interesting. Today, if you wanted to migrate to Israel and be considered a Jew, 
They don't look at the dad at all. You think they would say, hey, was your dad a Jew? They could care less. Your dad could be a Gentile for 10 generations. It's irrelevant. The question they have is your mother and your grandmother both, can they both prove that they are Jewish? In other words, their mothers were Jewish. And if the, two, the mother and the grandmother were Jewish, then you are a Jew. I have a friend, and his dad is a Jew. And we were on a bus touring Israel, and, and he says to the, the Jewish tour guide, he said, yeah, I'm a Jew. He said, oh, your, your mother's a Jew? No, she's Italian. My dad's a Jew. You are not a Jew. And he begins to go into this law And my friend says to him, the mother and the grandmother both have to be Jewish. Absolutely. That's throughout the history of Israel. That's a fact. And he said, read the last chapter of Ruth. King David is not a Jew. Because his grandmother wasn't a Jew. She was Ruth the Moabite. Interesting, isn't it? Hey, let me tell you, if somebody... According to the Jews, was a Jew. It was King David. That is the glory of the history of Israel, David. And to say, hey, his grandmother was a Moabitess, a Gentile. Boy, think of, get into the mind of the Lord here. We're not studying the Bible to get a bunch of information. We're studying the Bible to know God, to know his nature, to know his heart, to know his desire. And what we'll discover is that his focus was always on his bride. He says to Abraham in Genesis 12, he says, hey, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to bless all your lineage and you guys are going to be a blessing to all peoples. That was always the plan. All nationalities, all people groups would come to the Messiah, would come unto salvation, come to know salvation through the Jewish Messiah. But it wasn't to ever get stuck in Judaism. It was always to flow out to the whole world. And so we discover in the New Testament that Judaism is actually not according to DNA. That Judaism, the true Jews, were those who had the faith of their father Abraham. So Esau, he's an Edomite. Well, he's a Jew. Nope. Not according to God, because he didn't have the faith of Abraham. Ishmael, oh, now there, there's a Jew. No, Ishmael didn't have the faith of his father Abraham, but Isaac did, but Jacob did. And we come to Romans chapter 9, and he says, My arms are still extended to my DNA children, but they won't come. And therefore, that natural olive branch was broken off. It's that the wild olive branches grafted in. And they are equally children, whether they're Jews or Gentiles. They're equally my children. 
and we all become children of Abraham by something much more important than DNA, but by faith. So if somebody asks you, are you a Christian? Well, you know, in Acts, that name was brought up by people trying to mock the followers of Jesus. You're a bunch of little Christ. You just want to try to mimic Jesus. Look at that smirk on Peter's face. That's exactly like Jesus. Look at that smile of John. He hung out with Jesus too long. He even smiles like Jesus. Have you noticed when you hang out with people, you start talking like them and doing mannerisms like them? They said that to put them down, and they're like, hey, I sort of like that, a little, a little Christ, me. Yeah, I'm a Christian. That's not our name. Who are we really? We're, we're Jews. <laughs> we're of the Jewish faith. And the Jewish faith became complete because the Messiah has been revealed And we believe in that Jewish Messiah and are adopted in to the entire lineage that goes back to the very beginning. So really, we have a Jewish faith. I mean, really, that's it. We are a Jewish faith that finally came to its final result, which the Jewish faith would spill out into all the world And no matter what your nationality, I love that picture in Revelation of every tongue, of every people, of every tribe, of every nation, there in the multitude of the believers worshiping the Lord. From what I can gather, we're not going to look that much differently from our earthliness Our language is going to go with us. Oh, I think we'll have a heavenly language too. Our name will go with us, but yet Jesus is going to give us a new name just for the two of us. Our nationality seems to go with us. Pretty interesting, huh? I don't know what it's going to be like when we get resurrected in our new body, but the Lord did a pretty marvelous thing in creating this earth, when he creates the new earth, um, I don't know how much further from this it will be. Glorious and indestructible, and we'll have a new body that won't uh, age or break down or have pains or sorrows, but uh, it's, it's an interesting thing. And so we here are within history, are of the Jewish faith, the same as Ruth was by faith in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But, but, but I'm a Moabitess. It doesn't matter. God's greater than your Moabitessness. But I, I'm from a cursed people, and I've lived a cursed life my whole life with those cursed people. It's okay. When you put your faith in Christ, Everything changes through Christ in the inner man where it really matters. Well, this book of Ruth falls within the book of Judges. If you study the book of Judges, the first 16 chapters is the chronology of the time of Judges. Chapter 17 to 21 to the end of the book is an appendix 
to earlier in the book of Judges. So you take the wild and crazy stories of starting in chapter 17 to the end of the book of Judges, and it goes inside the timeline of the first 16 chapters. The same with the book of Ruth. It goes in, most believe, right around chapter 13. And about 1,300 years ago, some say it could be uh, 1,100 years ago, but it's about, I believe, 1,300 B.C., right around, somewhere around chapter 13 of Judges, we find this time of history. Really, that whole time when the judges ruled was a very dark time. And it sort of says it all in the very last verse of the book of Judges, in Judges 21, 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Sounds similar <laughs> to today. Everybody decides who God is by their own opinion, and everybody's opinion counts. Everybody decides what's right and wrong, and their opinion counts. And it just continued to melt down the society until the people were idolatrous, sinning, weird stories. Very weird, weird stories in the book of Judges. And in their hardship, they would cry out to God, and God would bring them a judge and deliver them. And so we begin this book in Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. And it came to pass in the days when judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to dwell in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. So the judges is about a 400-year period. And the key is there was no king in Israel at this time. After this time, the final judge is Samuel. And Samuel anoints David. Well, first Saul, and then later David to be the king. And then we have a season of kings. Well, this famine in the land. Now understand, Israel on the equator is exactly us, where we are here in Southern California. So it's sort of a bummer for us because we go there going, oh, it looks like home. <laughs> There's the ocean, uh, you know. And, uh, but in Israel, the way it was set up is you had the early rains in October, November, and that water got the soil in a good place for them to plant their seeds. And the, then the real rains came in January, February, just like here, just like here. And that rain would be the rain that would grow the crops. So the earlier or the latter rain, if one of them didn't happen, you had no crops. And God set it up that way on purpose. He says all year round, you got to walk in obedience. All year round, for you to live in this promised land, you need my continued blessing. 
And in Deuteronomy 11, read there in verse 13 through 17 with me. And it shall be that if you earnestly obey my commandments, which I command you today to love the Lord your God and serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, then I will give you the rain for your land in its season, the early rain and the latter rain, that you may gather in your grain, your new wine and your oil. And I will send grass in your fields for your livestock that you may eat and be filled. Take heed to yourself, lest your heart be deceived. You turn aside, serve other gods, and worship them. Listen to verse 17 now. Lest the Lord's anger be roused against you, and he shut up the heavens so that there be no rain, and the land yield no produce, and you perish quickly from a good land which the Lord is giving you. So they were in a season of being spanked. And of course, in this season, of being spanked, it would cause them to repent and cry out to God to relieve them and give them blessings so they can continue living under the hand of God in the land that he's provided. It tells us here that it, they were in Bethlehem. Now, when the children of Israel, the 12 tribes broke up the land, the tribe of Judah was south of Jerusalem. And in starting right in, in, in northern Jerusalem, starting there um, in the very southern part of the country was Bethlehem. And it was an extended area. Bethlehem, interesting enough, means house of bread. Of course, if you go look at pictures of Bethlehem today, it's nothing like it would have been here and in the time of David. In the time of David, there, there was woods and waterfalls and rivers and bears and lions. Today, it, it's just completely devastated. Why? Because you go back through history and Jerusalem was conquered more than any city has ever been conquered in history, around 70 times. And after you got control of Jerusalem, you wanted to make sure the next guy couldn't make bows and arrows and rams and catapults. So you started deforesting and got all the wood out of the way so they couldn't camp out very easily against you and they couldn't make weapons of war against you. So over and over again, that whole area of Israel kept getting more and more deforested. And then eventually there was a period where everybody got taxed by how many trees were on your land. You want to cut your taxes? Get rid of your trees. And so it's sad today to, to see a very barren, barren place. Nothing like they would have known here or in the time when David would have been a boy. Um, interesting, there is only really one area outside of Bethlehem where you could have farming land. And there is some there today, but it's very, very sickly looking. It's very sad looking. It's, it's, it's a little bit of dirt around the desert that they're trying to farm from. I don't think it does very good. Of course, Israel doesn't have that area. The Palestinians do at this time. 
And um, they left Bethlehem and started heading to Moab, this pagan land. I like what David Guzik says here. To do so, he had to hike through the desolate Jericho Pass. So he's cruising along the desert road, getting over to the Dead Sea. Jericho is at the northern end of the Dead Sea. And they would have to go through that pass. It's very narrow, through the Judean wilderness near the Dead Sea, going across the Jordan River into the land of Moab. This was a definite departure from the promised land and a return towards the wilderness from which God had delivered Israel hundreds of years before. These were clearly steps in the wrong direction. God made it clear, come into the promised land, don't leave the promised land. I have a few times taking trips to Israel, and then on some of them, we leave Israel and go into the country of Jordan to go down to see Petra in the area of the Edomites, which is the southern part of Jordan. And, of course, the rock city of Petra. And I've been told every time we do it, the moment you cross over the border from Israel into Jordan, it feels like you're departing from God. I mean, you know, there's principalities and powers, and sometimes you're driving, you can just sense this is a very dark area. This is a very oppressed area. This seems to be an area that Satan really has control. And Jordan is one of the best Arab countries there is. But nevertheless, I have to agree. I can have a very strong sense of a different spirit when you leave the borders of Israel to this day. I can't imagine these guys saying, famine, hmm, we know that's God shutting up the heavens because we're worshiping other gods and we're not obeying our God. And uh, yep, yep, here's the famine. This, like, like God said, to bring us to our knees, to cry out to him, to repent, so we can open the heavens back up. Hmm, but not me. I'll just come back once the rain starts. As soon as all these people repent and the rain happens, I'll just come back to Bethlehem. But right now, I don't feel like getting spanked. So what I'll do is I'll just leave Israel. I'll be slick. I'll be clever. I'll just grab my family and, and cruise on over to Moab and, and enjoy their fruitful time. And, and then when I hear that things have changed back in Israel, I'll come back home and I'll just, I'm, I'm just clever. I don't know why everybody doesn't do things clever like me. But in reality, it was serious disobedience. It was serious rebellion, like the prodigal son. Who didn't like living with his goody two-shoe dad and, and, and have to obey and submit and all those things. And I'll just cruise on out of here. And um, it didn't work out so well for either situation, the prodigal son or Elimelech and his family. Well, verse 2. The name of the man was Elimelech. The name of the wife was Naomi. The names of the two sons were Malon and Chilion. Ephrathites of Bethlehem of Judah, and they went to the country of Moab and remained there. And Imelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left and her two sons. Eli Melech, Eli, God, Melech, king. His parents, 
named him in a very different season. When things were being blessed and prosperous, submitted to God. And our son is going to do the right thing and make God his king. Oh, here he is born. God is king. Look at our little obedient son worshiping and loving God. And not like our parents did when they were worshiping those pagan gods. And we ended up being captive by the Philistines. And we called out to God. And God raised up Samson. And God raised up Deborah. And God, different times when God raised up judges and delivered us from our enemies. And... um but not anymore. Boy, I'm going to tell my son, make God king and obey him. The rains will come, the early and the latter rains, and God's blessing will be upon us. This will be a, a land flowing with milk and honey, more than we can drink, more than we can eat, sweet and delicious and appetizing. Naomi means my delight or the delightful one or pleasant one. And so both of them in their generation, when their parents named them, were very positive, very hopeful, very joyful. But unfortunately, now times have changed, as it does in Judges, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And now their sons are born in a very difficult time. I, I wonder if Naomi couldn't eat properly her kids are named Malone, which means sick or sicky. He was a sickly person. I just can't imagine naming your kids sickly. Sicko. Chilion means pining, like a person wasting away or pining away. He was almost dying from the day he was born. But again, if... if Naomi was malnutrition when she was carrying them. If her boys, there just wasn't a lot of good food around as they're maturing and growing up. That would, that would make sense, wouldn't it? That you sort of got a sickly family because of the situation. Notice here, this name, an Ephrathites of Bethlehem. You can go back in Genesis, and it appears that the greater region area of Bethlehem and even beyond, because the area that was right next to Jerusalem and even in Jerusalem, part of it was considered the area of Ephra also. Uh, some of the, uh, the Ephraimites were actually called Ephrathites as well. So it was maybe the, the larger county area, I don't know, but definitely included the area of Bethlehem. Because in Genesis 35, 19, when Rachel had just given birth to Benjamin and died, they were on their way to Bethlehem, or way, and, and, and they didn't call it. Notice what it says here. And Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrathah, that is, Bethlehem. So it's, it's another name, but yet it's, it, it seems to be including something more than just Bethlehem. David, later on, when they're talking about him right after uh, that whole story of David and Goliath, there in 1 Samuel 17, when they're identifying David, they said David was a son of that Ephrathite of Bethlehem of Judah. The tribe of Judah had the area of Bethlehem. That was their allotted portion. And so he is also an Ephrathite 
Maybe the ancient pagan name before they came and dwelt in the land. We, we don't know. Why am I pointing this out? Because there's a very important prophecy that includes this. In Micah 5.2, you'll recognize it. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one who is ruler in Israel, who's going forth there from old, from everlasting. And we know that's a prophecy of Jesus being born in Bethlehem, right? In Luke chapter 2, we see that fulfillment. In verse 4, Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house of the lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in a swaddling clothes, laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the end. A precious prophecy about the area of Bethlehem Ephrathah. And so it says here that they went into the country of Moab and remained there. In verse 1, it made it clear they were just going to dwell there, sojourn there for a short time. They weren't planning on making this a long stay, maybe just for a season until the rain started back up, maybe for a year or two. But when we start backsliding, when we go to the foreign land like the prodigal son did, Things don't work out right, and we get stuck. And Satan starts using that to his advantage, and he'll get you even stuckerer, right? And so you're stuck because you're certain to be there to begin with. I love what Chuck Smith used to always say, we need to live under the spout where the blessings flow out. But like a, like a dumb little lamb, we go away from the waterfall, and we go stand against another wall, and we're like, it's dry over here, and I'm not getting wet, and I'm so hot. And, and we're like, hey, just go into the waterfall over there. Why are you standing over there by that mountain? There's no waterfall over there. In the same way, these guys are leaving the promised land. They're leaving the, the, the God's area of covering. They're out of the will of God in several different ways. And we are not surprised, but they were, that it wasn't this blessed time. I think Eli Melech and all these guys, they're going over there thinking, man, we're going to be so slick. We're going to just cruise in there. I got enough money. We're going to rent a house. I, I know a friend who knows a friend, and we're going to get in there. And, and, you know, we're pretty good at making pots or whatever. We'll have this little income. It'll be a nice little vacation. I, they got a nice little pond there and a lake. And, and, and uh, we're, we're just going to have this great season for a couple of years. We'll come back to Bethlehem richer happier. We didn't suffer through a famine time like all these other smucks who stayed in Bethlehem and powered it out. But man, we had the best of both worlds. I, th I think the prodigal thought that too, didn't he? I'm going to take this bag of money. I'm going to prosper wherever I go. And of course, he just lost it all. Well, they went there and it says he died. So it wasn't a short time. He remained there permanently. And in verse 4 and 5, now they took wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Ophrah, 
in the name of the area Ruth, and they dwelt there about 10 years old, decade of their life. And both Melon and Chilion also died. So the women survived her two sons and her husband. You say, what is that, Oprah? Or, or, no, no, it's Orpah. Well, what I've heard is that was supposed to be Ophrah's name. And her mom misspelled it on her birth certificate. And thus, we have a much more popular name now than Orpah, uh, Oprah. But uh, either way, um, they end up getting stuck there 10 years. I'll tell you what. I, I, think, I think in my experience of backsliding and sinning and, and not always obeying God, I think this is probably the, the worst part of it all is the time you can't get back. The friendships that should have deepened, the fruitfulness that should have happened. Oh yes, the pain from the suffering and the loss of disobeying God, yes. But actually it's on the other side of the coin. The time that was lost that you'll never get back a decade of your life you can't reclaim. There, there's a, every decade of your life, is, it, it's, it's completely different. Your 20s are not like your 30s, and your 30s aren't like your 40s. And your 40s are not like your 50s. This is completely different. And your 50s are not like your 60s. I don't really know about that. You have to ask my wife. <laughs> She's six months older than me, and she just turned... Uh, a decade older, so she's I like older women. She's six months older, but anyway, um, <laughs> get in trouble for that. Um, sleeping on the couch tonight, no. Um, but just the, the the loss of those ten years, and then on top of that, I've lost a son. But I didn't lose all my children. She lost her spouse. She lost her boys. That were really her ticket to take care of her in her older age. This, this was a costly short trip. A short little trip. A time to get across the border to a place where God is not so paying attention to where the rain's still falling and and it could have worked out so differently and and now Naomi is lost everything powerful the compromising thing of them marrying these two Moabite women I wonder what she was thinking, Naomi thinking, when her, her boys wanted to marry these Moab women. It couldn't be clear in Deuteronomy 7, verse 3 and 4. Nor shall you make marriages with them. You shall not give your daughter to their son or their, take their daughter to your son. For they will turn your sons away from following me and serve other gods. So the anger of the Lord will be aroused against you and destroy you suddenly. Wow, the handwriting's on the wall there. 
Solomon, the wisest man that ever lived. My wife, the smartest woman that's ever lived. <laughs> I mean that with all my heart. Although I'm trying to get back in good graces, I, I do mean that with all my heart. <clears throat> End up self-destructing over pagan wives. In 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 1 through 6, I'm not going to read it all, but notice in verse 2, from the nations of whom the Lord had said to the children of Israel, you shall not intermarry with them, nor they with you. Surely they will turn away your hearts from their gods. Solomon clung to them in love. Look at verse 6. So Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord, did not fully follow the Lord as did his father David. Why? Because he spent the latter decade of his life building temples in Jerusalem to these pagan gods. You see, Solomon says, well, well, I can marry a pagan woman because I'm Solomon. I'm smart. I'm the king. I live, I'm surrounded right next, I live right next to the temple. I'm right next to the priest. I, 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 I'm an exception to this rule. It won't affect me like an average ordinary Jew. I'm the smartest one. I'm the king. I live right next door to the temple. I, I won't get affected, but yet he did. He fell in love with these 700 wives. Whew. And then he wanted to build them all a temple so they could each worship in their God in Jerusalem. Unbelievable. Many times it says this over and over again. Abraham made a point in Genesis 24 to make sure his, his uh, son Isaac did not have a wife from those people that were around that area in the promised land area. Genesis 28, Isaac didn't want Jacob to. In the law in Exodus and Deuteronomy, Joshua talks about it. Ezra, after the time they were in Babylon and went back home, was an issue in the New Testament, the parallel principle continues. Oh, not about marrying somebody of a different nationality, but about somebody who's unequally yoked in another way. In 2 Corinthians 6.14, do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership with righteousness and lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? In 1 Corinthians 15.33, do not be deceived, tricked, self-deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits, or like the ESV version, good company runs good morals. That's the way I learned it as a kid growing up. Don't be to see bad company corrupts good morals. How true that is. You think, I'll affect them, they won't affect me. I, I, I'm an exception, no. So these women survived their husbands, Naomi, her sons, and she was brought low. And now her heart, like the prodigal son's heart, is turned to God. Notice in Ruth chapter 1, verse 8 there, it says, The Lord deal kindly with me. In verse 9, the Lord grant that you may find rest. She's talking to her two daughter-in-laws. And Ruth 1.13, for it grieves me very much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. You, you see, we got to understand and remember that yes, our sin affects us, but it never only affects us, Right? 
it affects others. And we are a big family here. And we definitely affect one another. And when we're being fruitful, we're affected. But when we're being compromised, we're all affected with the fruit that you should be bearing or the negative things that you're reaping the consequences of. It hurts us all. It affects us all. But she had a repentive heart. She tells her daughters. David said in Psalms 119, verse 67, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Spankings work, don't they? <laughs> Psalms 51, 17, the sacrifice of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. Isaiah 57, 15, for thus is the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with whom who has the contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble, to revive the heart of the contrite ones. C.S. Lewis, Lewis said it's so good in his book on the problem of pain or the problem of evil. He says, we can ignore even pleasure, but pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts in our pain, for it is a megaphone to rouse a deaf world. How true. But it's a beautiful verse, verse 6 of Ruth 1. Then she rose with her daughter-in-law, and she might return from the country of Moab. Her heart is set on returning for she had heard the country of Moab and that the Lord had visited his people by giving them bread. God is so gracious. Like the prodigal son, we just need to get up and return. God will immediately begin the process of restoring and blessing. I, I love this because in the prodigal son story, the prodigal son had to get up and he had a long ways to travel to get back home. Maybe it took him a few days or weeks or months. We don't know how far away he was. But when we return, it's spiritual. And what do we find when we return? The Lord's right there at our door. <laughs> He's been knocking at our door, and somehow we didn't hear it. Revelation 3, behold, I stand at the door and knock. He is talking to the church. He was knocking on the outside of the church of Laodicea that it was so backslidden. And he says, I've been knocking on my own door, really, on my own house, wanting to get back into the center of my own home. But you guys kicked me out. You were having church without me, and I couldn't even get inside. We can fall like that, can't we? All of us. All of us. There's no sin that's not common to all men. But boy, when we return, he's there knocking. I love that in Luke 15, 20. And he, the prodigal son, rose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him, had compassion, and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. Father was reading this story to his sons. And he said, do you know why they cried? And the little boy said, yes, he fell on his neck. <laughs> yeah, I don't think he fell on his, I think he was hugging him. Anyway, Hosea 6.1, come.
come and let us return to the Lord, for he has torn, but he will heal us. He has stricken, but he will bind us up. Joel 2.13, so rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, great in kindness. He relents from doing harm. Zechariah 1.3, therefore say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. We're separated God, not because God separated himself from us. It's because we separated ourselves from him. Isaiah 55, 7, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord. He will have mercy on him and to our God and he will abundantly pardon. Isaiah 44, 22, I have blotted out like a thick cloud your transgressions and like a cloud your sins. Return to me for I have redeemed you. Well, finishing up this chapter, let's look in verse 8 through 14. So Naomi said to her two daughter-in-laws, go return each to the mother's house and the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. And the Lord granted that you find rest each in the house of her husband. So she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. They, they really did have a love for one another. This family broken up by death and hardship. It is a very sad, sad place to be. And they said to her, surely we will return with you to your people. And Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Are there still sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Take a note of that. Turn back, my daughters. Go, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should have hope, if I should have a husband tonight and should also bear sons, would you wait for them till they are grown? Would you restrain yourself from having husbands? No, my daughters, for it grieves me very much for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Ophrah kissed her and mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. In the Jewish culture, when a boy died, it was his brother's responsibility to take his wife, maybe even a second wife now if need be, and to raise up children, and the sons that are born would not be his sons, it would be his brother's sons. Sounds crazy and unusual to us, but this was the norm found in Deuteronomy 25. This way, because you've got to realize, when they went into the promised land, the 12 tribes broke up the promised land into 12 sections, but then each tribe broke that out into sections for each family. And that land was yours continuously forever. And even if you fell on hard times and you had to sell your land, every 50 year was a year of jubilee and you got your land back. You never permanently lost the land. And so for his portion to remain continuous, they would raise up children in that dead person's name for the inheritance sake. Now, put a note in that, because this is the concept that's going to get evolved into the next several chapters. There's no brother to marry these gals, but guess what? There is a kinsman. And we are going to discover one of the most powerful names of Christ for us. 
the kinsman redeemer. I call, I'm calling this series The Romance of Redemption. And I'll tell you what, we're going to develop that coming up in these next couple of weeks. Well, Ruth wouldn't go. Oprah went back, but Ruth clung to her, it says in verse 14. And then in verse 15, Ruth begins to speak, and she says, Look, or excuse me, Naomi says, Look, your sister in law has gone back to her people and to your gods, return from your sister in law. She's gone back to her people, back to her gods. And then Ruth speaks and said, Entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you. For wherever you will go, I will go. Wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. And the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts you and me. And when she, Naomi, saw that she, Ruth, was determined to go with her, she stopped speaking to her. I think probably some of the most beautiful poetry in all history, bar none. And of course, this was a love of Ruth towards her mother-in-law, but often this is quoted in marriage ceremonies because it really is the heart of a wife towards her husband as well. And it's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful statement. But it's really supposed to be our heart. This Moabite Gentile woman, she's speaking faith. She's showing this deep commitment. Make note, in her heart, she's already made a sharp break from her own people and their gods and whatever that might have to offer. For Ruth, she was choosing a very bleak, difficult path. Women had no rights. Women couldn't get jobs. They couldn't own land. They had no husband. They had nothing. And they're both a couple widows by themselves traveling and they, they would get back to Bethlehem. They would be owners of nothing. Or Ruth, young, beautiful gal, go back home. Some guy's going to want to marry her, be with the extended family, and be there for Thanksgiving and Christmas and whatever. I don't know. This pagan culture. But Ruth is like, no. No. I, I can't do that. That has zero appeal to me. I would rather... Go with you, Naomi, and and experience hardship with you until the day I die. I would rather go with you back to the promised land and live in poverty and hardship and be by your side until you die or I die. Wow. Really, this is us speaking to Jesus. It's really us crying out to our Husband Jesus, wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your your people shall be my people. Your God shall be my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. The Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts you and me. This is a commitment to death. This is a commitment that won't change. 
This is not the words of a young, naive little girl who's going to wish she changed her mind in a couple of weeks when things get hard. I'm telling you, my eyes are wide open. And I know this isn't going to be an easy road. But I know that where I need to be is with you in the promised land, serving your God, identifying with your people. Wow, what a powerful commitment. What a powerful heart and statement. Verse 19 to 22. Now the two of them went until they came to Bethlehem, and it happened when they had come to Bethlehem that all the city had excited because of them. And the woman said, it's in Naomi. So there's this, there's this party, sort of like when the prodigal son came home. There was a feast. They're like, wow, this is great. And she said to them, do not call me Naomi, pleasantness, but Mara, bitterness. For the Almighty has dwelt very bitterly with me. This is true. I went out full and the Lord has brought me home empty. Why do you call me Naomi? Since the Lord has testified against me, the Almighty has afflicted me. So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. Now they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest, the autumn time. It's clear. She realized, I went there. Of course, it wasn't all her fault. She's following her husband. Didn't have a whole lot of choice in that. But nevertheless, I, I was there being disobedient, leaving the promised land, unwilling to take the discipline of God that he was giving us here in Bethlehem. I was out of his will, and I've reaped what I've sown and how painful it is. We've got to remember that. Galatians 6, verse 7 and 8. Do not be deceived. God's not mocked. Whatever a man sows, he will also reap. For he who sows to the flesh will reap corruption. He who sows to the spirit will the spirit reap everlasting life. Proverbs 13, 15. The way of the unfaithful or the way of the transgressor, the way of the sinner is hard or harsh or destructive. I used to tell my kids all the time, life is hard already. Life is going to be harsh in this sinful world, in our sinful bodies, with a real devil who beats up on you. And you're reaping what you've sown according to foolishness and flesh. I'd say to them, it's hard enough already. It's confusing enough already. It's harsh enough already. Don't compound it with foolishness and sinfulness. Life is too confusing. It's too painful already. Don't make it more so by foolishness and sinfulness. But by no means, this is the end of the story. What do we discover when we return to God? We have a repentive heart. Psalms 113, 7 and 8. He raises the poor out of the dust, lifts the needy out of the ash heap, that he may seat him with princes with the princes of his people. Joel 2, verse 25 and 26. So I will restore you the years that the swarming locust has eaten up. 
the crawling locust, the consuming locust, the chewing locust, my great army which I sent among you. So I spanked you and you have a decade you lost, but I'm going to make sure that the blessings of that decade aren't lost for you in the future. Isn't that amazing? God didn't need to do that. Forgiving me is enough. But no, God says, your foolishness, your sinfulness, you missed out on on things I wanted to teach you, on people that I wanted to enrich you, and and fruitfulness you could have had that you didn't have. I'm going to make it up to you. And so get ready for double the blessings in the next decade. You shall eat plenty and be satisfied. Praise the name of the Lord your God who has dwelt wondrously with you. My people shall never be put to shame. Amen to that. Joel 2, end of verse 26. And my people shall never be put to shame. Isaiah 61, 7. Instead of your shame, you shall have double honor. Instead of confusion, they shall rejoice in their portion. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess double. Everlasting joy shall be theirs. Jeremiah 17, 14, heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me, and I shall be saved, for you are my praise. Jeremiah 29, 11, I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord. Thoughts of peace and not evil to give you a future and a hope. Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28, Jesus speaking, come to me all you labor and heavy laden and I'll give you rest. John 14, 1, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many mansions. Ah, and it goes on. In my own notes, I have a lot more. Ah, thank you, Lord, because we are that person, Lord. We have separated ourselves from you. We have tried to be slick and get away from reaping what we've sown. Forgive us, God. Heal us, Lord. Lord, we know what it's like to be in the dust heap. Lord, we need you. We come to you. We draw near to you. There may be some of you right now in your life, you're in turmoil because You're addicted to some kind of sin, some kind of thing that's weighing you down, bumming you out, hurting others. This message for you. For some of you, it's your years when you raised your kids, you weren't walking with the Lord, and your kids, ah, it hurts, it hurts. Your kids have walked away. Maybe you follow the Lord perfectly, but nevertheless, you have a prodigal son or daughter. For some of you, it's in your health because you abuse drugs and alcohol. For some of you, it's in your finances. You were foolish when you should have been wise. For some of you, it's in your marriage. There's a famine in the land of your marriage. And they're coming up with answers. Let's go to Moab. And the answer is, listen, the famine is drawing you to your knees. Moab is not the answer. And for all of us to come to that place, to look unto Jesus, Lord, wherever you are, that's where I want to be. Where your heart is, is where I want my heart to be. Where your mind is, is where I want my mind to be. 
even though I'm in this sinful body, I'm in this horrible dry land, nevertheless I live in the house of bread because of your word. I live in Judah, the place of praise, because your spirit lives in us. Lord, take us out of this misty lowland we've been for so long, in this desert, in this famine, and draw us unto you, Lord, that no matter what the situation is, that you would be praised, you would be glorified, you would make us fruitful in your people. Heal us, Lord, and we will be healed. Mm.